Hey and welcome to Maybe It's Rocket Science, a place where we will come together to break down the complex issues prevalent in our society by inviting a variety of different viewpoints, many of which may differ from our own. My name is Gina Porles and I'm your host. So for today's episode, we're talking about prison education. Prison education is essentially where people go into prison systems and help give those that are incarcerated a college education. On the show today, we have Stephen Hartnett, who is a University of Colorado Denver professor, and he runs a program that allows student teachers to go in and teach communication classes to people who are in prison. And then I also interview two scholars who are part of the Pukesta Foundation. The Pukesta Foundation provides scholarships to undergraduate students who have financial need and a deep commitment to civic engagement and social justice. So I have Giovanni Reyes and I also have Aaron Rooney talking about their experiences with their projects and let's go ahead and get started and see what they got. Um, so what made you want to dive into like ideas within prisons like what made you want to do this so Giovanni will go first with you so my project that revolves around the school to prison pipeline the way that I got involved was because growing up in my middle school and my elementary school I observed a lot of students being suspended expelled even sent to detention for a lot of small things now for us at the time those disciplinary actions were pretty normal but however, when I got to my high school, my high school experience was totally much different. I remember in ninth grade when one of my best friends, she got into a fight with another student. Instead of uh, suspending her, they actually brought her in with the person that she fought with. And through that, she was able to stay in school, resolve the issue. And to me, that was just amazing because that is something that was not happening before. So that got me an interest of why is this happening in certain schools and why isn't it happening to students of color more often than their white counterparts. So in high school, I got involved with an organization named Padres and Jovenes Unidos, and they have a line of work. It's a community organization that advocates for educational equity, and they kind of helped me understand the severity of this issue and helped me place names to these institutional barriers for students and since then i've been advocating for educational equity and something that i believe everyone i believe that everyone should have a fair and equal access to education what are some ways do you think that schools like public schools could help students or notice these issues or triggers or things like that Sure, that's a great question. Well, you know, within the prison community, there's a popular phrase, the schools to prison pipeline. And that phrase is meant to indicate that when young people have difficulty in school, instead of our helping them, we tend to suspend them or punish them or we call the police on them. And so many of our schools unintentionally end up siphoning, literally channeling students into the prison system. So that's where we get that metaphor of the schools to prison pipeline. So what educators have been talking about now is how do we reverse the schools to prison pipeline? And that means offering classes about social justice. That means centering a notion of care for young people who come from harder neighborhoods or difficult family situations. It means that instead of saying we have zero tolerance, which is a Bush administration phrase, meaning punish everything, 
Instead of zero tolerance, what if we were to say we have complete love? And when students are failing, we have to do what we can do to help them succeed. So it, it really entails a complete reversal of how we think about young people. Instead of punishing them, we need to support them. Instead of sending them to prison, we need to send them to school. Students that have behavioral issues are the ones that continue to go back to detention, go back to getting suspended. And what teachers might have trouble understanding is that just sending them out of the classroom is not going to fix their behavior in the long term. And I think that's why it is important to have these restorative practices in order to prevent any future misbehaviors, but also just to teach the students how to teach them how their actions will affect them in the future. Yeah, no, and I, th I, feel, I feel like that's so true because even when you were talking about it, I was like, that can be also transition to how you were raised or it can be mm. like transition yeah. to how the system that is put in place in America has essentially groomed you to be. Like if you were quote unquote a bad kid in high school mm -hmm. you were treated like, like a, a criminal kid. okay well you can't be around other kids obviously you mm -hmm. have to be away from people we have to essentially being suspended or anything is like being locked up like you can't see your friends you can't do anything like that mm -hmm. well also but, too another thing is that we with detention it's basically isolation mm -hmm. you i remember if you got in trouble at my high school you couldn't go eat lunch you had to go sit on the floor or on a desk or in a small room mm -hmm. facing the wall and you couldn't speak to anyone you can't talk to anyone you just had to do there and so we see that transition to prison systems where actually a lot of juveniles are put in solitary confinement or mm -hmm. isolation and that messes with their mental aspect more than anything isolation has very deep deep impacts on people and more mm -hmm. than you could ever understand because we're humans. Mm -hmm. We have this natural ability to connect and need to socialize because that's mm -hmm. just part of our nature. So that really, and that, and they think, okay, if you don't want to be alone, then you need to follow the, follow the rules. And that's not it. It's making you go crazy and it's hurting and it's actually pushing back progress more than we realize too. Mm -hmm. Right. I was able to have an internship working with a restorative coordinator at an elementary school. And I was so grateful to see the progress of students grow in their behavioral and how they behave. So, so the internship consisted of, instead of students being sent out to detention, they were brought in to, to see the restorative coordinator and the coordinator um, sat down with them and had a discussion of what happened in, in class. He was able to go through the process of what happened inside the classroom and what made them um, behave that way and over the course of the six months that I was there I saw a lot of students really transform and a lot of that came actually from the trust that was built and the relationship that was built because when a student does not have that uh, relationship with built with the teacher he um, he or she is more likely to act out so there's a big disengage between the students and the staff that causes them to act out however I know that for instance personally when I had teachers that really engaged with their students and that they really connected with us, the students that tend to act out really respected them and actually behave better in the classrooms. Them think that love instead is going to be a better option than to know you need to respect me or A, B, and C is going to happen. Right. Well, that's a really tough question. I mean, so, yeah. you know, it's one thing to say we should love and support these kids. It's another thing to put it in practice. 
Uh, and so I, I can tell you, I mean, I have, I have two young girls in, in public schools. And my youngest daughter, for example, goes to her homeroom every morning. And in her homeroom, there are a fair number of children who are underslept, underfed, for whatever reason, they've not done their homework. And these kids hate school. I mean, they just hate it. And so as the, as the teacher in that situation, it's, it's nearly impossible, right? We can't ask a teacher to solve all those problems. We also can't put police in those classrooms. That doesn't help either. So, so what happens in our culture now is we, we tend to blame schools for things that aren't their fault. And we like to act like schools can fix things that they can't. <laughs> so right. the deeper issue that you're pointing to is, you know, most young people, there's data to show this, that the kind of turn towards a kind of alternative slash criminal lifestyle tends to happen around the eighth grade. So there's something fundamental happening in the development of a human being around eighth grade. That's where the intervention needs to come. And that's where, uh, you know, bad behaviors and antisocial behaviors really need to be modified so that young people can see the benefit of performing well in school. But that's not something the police can do. And that's not something teachers can do alone. They need massive social support to make that possible. So it would be help from the public. So it would be work that you're doing, for example, going into these places and nonprofits helping and social workers or things like that helping? Yeah, it takes a whole network of social care to help solve this problem. Okay, so right now I'm in between a lot of things. Uh, part of my project was I was going into the prison system and I was meeting with these women and I was helping teach classes, well not teach, just observe because I'm not formally trained to do it yet, but I was contributing and getting to talk with the women and learn about what what attitudes, what life situations, what things basically got in the way for them and that changed them, that got them on this path to incarceration and so learning about their attitudes their family lifestyle where they went wrong was just really interesting and they I asked them you know what can I do to help what would be the best thing for you and it's a lot of there's a lot of different things but they're learning to overcome the situations that they've been through and start changing the way they're thinking so going basically just like what I was doing was helping them practice interview. I've been doing pageants since I was 14, so I've had a lot of interview practice, a lot of interview <laughs> practice. So it basically feels like I'm cheating every time I go into a job interview because I've had so much. Really? And so this is something that's really important to me, being able to speak with someone, being able to clearly say who you are and communicate that to someone is so important and when you're in prison your self-esteem goes down so low so imagine okay i'm out of prison i can't get a job because people are going to discriminate against me i don't have any place to go i don't have any money i don't know what to do you're at an all-time low and it's scary so for me being able to be like okay this is what you're going to do you're going to tell me what you like about yourself what you've done what skills you have and we're going to help you put together a resume get stuff together and so a lot of what i'm doing too is i go around to different prisons and learn what the ills are and what can better be addressed so in denver women's prison they actually have a cosmetology program which is so cool because the women are actually able to learn this, this really important skill and apply it so when they are out they have a job experience and they're getting their licenses and it's a very it's a really successful thing to see there's a lot of dog training programs too where the women get to train these dogs and some of them get to keep the dogs I believe is what it is and some of them are just they people 
send their dogs to prison to be trained for a few months and they come back trained. So it's a really cool opportunity. Plus it's teaching these skills that it helps you cope better, understand your emotions, have patience, and also learn something and you feel valued, which is something I think is so easily overlooked. I feel like one of the more negative condensation when thinking about prisons and things like that, or people are typically afraid and they're worried and they don't see these people as people, but mm-hmm. just as the hard line of criminals. And that's something that I've even found to be super dangerous and completely defeats the purpose of putting people in prison, which is supposed to be a rehabilitation program when it's really not. It's just all about punishment. So what are some things you would like to see change about our justice and um, reform systems? Well, you just touched on one, Gina, where the the idea is society at large seems to think people go to prison because they're monsters and they're irredeemable and they need to be locked away. My sense is that most people go to prison because they've had a really uh, lack of opportunities in their lives, lack of education, lack of good jobs, lack of consistent housing or health care. And then people, when people become desperate, they start committing desperate acts. Most folks don't wake up and say, today's the day I want to hurt my neighbor or today's the day I want to cheat my family. Uh, so I, I think of the people who go to prisons in America as being uh, the product of a system that does not enhance opportunity and equality. And so as a teacher, you want to address that and you want to say, hey, what can we do to make equality and opportunity accessible to all Americans? And for me, that means going into the prison system. Sometimes they're scary. Sometimes you have people who are really intimidating. But Mm -hmm. in my experience, these people are just, they realize they've done something wrong. And in order to get into like the reentry initiative program or these special programs, you have to show you're dedicated and you want to change. And for those people, they really are easy to get along with. They're recognizing that they've done something wrong and that they're ready to change. So it becomes easier when, when you, when you're with someone who really wants to change, it's, you're just dealing with a normal person and they are normal people. It's just, we glorify it so much in the media. And so it's just, we have to realize they're still just people. (laughs) The thing that is most startling is for Americans who've not had a lot of contact with prisons or prisoners to try to comprehend those people, that population as being pretty much just like they are. Uh, And I'll give you an example. I had a a student one year, let's call him Buddy. Buddy was a big dude with a shaved head and arms the size of a pickup truck. He was clearly been lifting weights. And when Buddy frowned, he looked like he could break you in half. Like he was just the scariest dude. And when Buddy smiled, he would melt your heart. And it was striking to me to realize this guy has both capacities in him. The, the look of anger and fear and the look of joy and love. And I think most Americans have been taught to think of prisoners as the look of fear and anger. And if, if we could all just wrap our heads around the fact that prisoners have love in their hearts too and are capable of great things, then maybe we wouldn't be so in a rush to lock them up forever. And that's why we publish our magazine. I'll put a little plug in here called Captured Words, Free Thoughts. It's an annual publication of writings and drawings and letters made by men and women in prison. 
And the idea of the magazine is to say, here's someone you thought was a monster who is in fact a mind-blowing poet. And if we could all just wrap our heads around that idea that prisoners have potential, then I think that would help us change the way we handle them. Well, and I'd add to that, Gina, too. This is where we, we kind of enter a, a philosophical plane. <laughs> the folks who've gone to prison in America, you, your dad's right. I mean, many of them are because they have done terrible things based on a series of circumstances. And let's push that farther, though, and say, what's the worst thing you've ever done? And how would you feel if you'd spent the rest of your life being judged on the worst thing you've ever done? And think of what a burden that would be. I know I've done some terrible things. I'm not in prison, but I've done things I'm ashamed of. I think most of your listeners probably have. So part of what we're asking for is a, a culture of understanding. Uh, doesn't mean you let bad behavior go, but it means you empathetically try to understand what led to that behavior and, and how can we now, on the other side of that damage, how can we talk about what does it mean to be a tax bank citizen who can be a good father or a good mother, uh, a participant in civic society. So your dad's not wrong. I would just say let's, let's take his initial response and say, how do we now rehabilitate that person? Or how do we give that person a chance they never even had in the first place? So a lot of a lot of people I tell I work in the prison system, I'm trying to, you know, basically be an activist. I don't get a lot of negative feedback because a lot of people are starting to see, wow, that's we really do need to change in it. But what I do get a pushback is, well, we can't get to we can't get soft on crime. It's always we need to be tough on crime. We can't just let these things go. Punishment is the like you said, I mean, we've had these practices for so long that we're kind of afraid to change. And we think okay, if we go soft now, this isn't going to do anything. And what I think people don't realize is that if you go to the National St Justice Statistics for Justice site, there was a study in 2005 that followed, I think, 400,000 prisoners uh, within the uh, 30 states and within three years of the release 67 percent 68 percent were already reincarcerated so mm. it's this constant struggle and people need to realize that we we need to change because something isn't working and the amount of people who are being incarcerated keeps going up and the united states is the number one country that leads in incarceration and just why what what i get is that okay, well, what are we supposed to do? Just let them go? What are we... That's not the case. And I think what we really need to focus on and what I try to change people's mind is, first of all, the money, the money aspect. We're spending, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, we're spending a lot of money to house these prisoners. And I think that money could go to something so much better, uh, job reform. And when you actually put time and effort into retraining someone, they're going to feel valued, they're going to feel successful, and they're going to be more likely to stay away from the things that got them in trouble and focus on bettering their lives. Another aspect is we're going to save a lot of money every year when we decrease the amount of people who are being reincarcerated. Another aspect is safer communities. We want a strong, safe community and society. And oh, I think a lot of people overlook is that a lot of people steal cars. They break into cars, they break into houses to find things to sell, to get money to kind of support their lifestyles and that's not always the case sometimes they're stealing so they can buy diapers for their child or buy food because they're starving and or buying drugs because addiction is not treated properly we are taking we are taking prisons and treating them like mental wards and 
rehabilitation clinics and they're not equipped to do that. And so we're punishing for things such as substance abuse when we should be trying to rehabilitate so it doesn't keep happening and we'll spend less money that way. Mm. Another aspect too is what people overlook is that, well, they deserve it. They, they committed these crimes and they deserve it. And I think a part of me wants to say, yeah, you know, there's people who murder people and do really bad things who don't feel any remorse, but there's also people who feel incredible, incredible remorse for what they've done and they're trying to change. And that just appeals to my humanity side. It's just, they're still people and they're asking for help. And I think that as a society, we can't turn our backs on them. The people who need help the most are getting it the least. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. something that needs to be communicated and understood. So what are some things that you would say to the people that are like, well, they got out and then they ruined their chance again? Well, I'd say that think of how hard it is in your daily life to make a transition. Think, think of the effort it requires for you to move apartments, for example, and how it just wipes you out physically and emotionally and financially. And then imagine you've been someone who's, say, you've been in prison for 20 years and you get out. And so you've got $50 in your pocket you have no place to live, you don't have a job, you don't have health care. Everyone who ever loved you is probably stopped loving you because you've been in prison for so long, right? And so imagine just kind of standing on a street corner. You said you're from the Midwest. So let's take Michigan City, for example, where there's a big prison. Imagine standing on a street corner in Michigan City with 50 bucks and deciding, what do I do with the rest of my life? Now, you probably don't have a college education yet. You've not been to trade school. So that's a transition that is almost virtually guaranteed to fail. So what we, those of us who are concerned about social justice need to do is not only do the work in the prisons, but the key component is to make sure that when people get out of prison that there's someone there to lend a helping hand and say, let me help you find some housing, let me set you up with a job, let's talk about your health care needs, let's try to build a social safety net of friendship around you, maybe get you involved in a local church or an NGO or some kind of civic engagement. So as hard as that transition is for, say, a typical college student in a new town, it's 10 times harder for a former prisoner. And So we've really got to focus on the transitional moment so that folks don't go back. And I'll just, by, to lock in that idea, Gina, you know, the national recidivism average. So recidivism is when you get out and you recommit and you go back to prison. The national recidivism average is 75%. So three out of every four prisoners who get out go back. So that to me is a mark of really a tragedy, right? We we can't have that happen. If you do your time, you get out, you should stay out. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the work that you're doing is absolutely amazing. The group that you are in charge of, and because that's what jail theoretically should be. It should be to rehabilitate people to go back into the working world. And I think a lot of other countries do that. I think Norway has a really good prison system for some reason. I think I read that. But um, So what do you think could be done on more of a federal level or state level legislation-wise that could help this situation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think we as a nation have decided to invest a lot of money in our police forces. We've decided to invest a lot of money in our prisons. We've not decided to invest a lot of money in the transitional programming that will help former prisoners stay out. 
So that's the next agenda for social justice work. Is And you asked about whether it's going to be federal or state. I think it's probably going to be state just because mm -hmm. state, so many of the state systems are so different. So the responses need to be different. But certainly here in Colorado, what we'd like to see is a much stronger transitional safety net. Housing, jobs, health care. Yeah. And this kind of piggybacks off of that. Um, why do you think Americans love punishment so much? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Americans, how much, how much time do we have? <laughs> how long an answer do you we want? We have all the time in the world. <laughs> I don't want to get in this too deep, but... But I would say that if you want to make sense of the prison system in the 21st century, you've got to understand 18th and 19th century slavery. And this is a country that was founded on slavery. And under the slave system, slave masters could punish at will. There was no concept of innocence until proven guilty. Uh, and if you look at 19th century Southern jurisprudence, slaves were considered guilty unless proven innocent. So there's this contradiction in the American fabric. We believe in liberty and equality for all on the one hand, and we believe in killing slaves on the other hand. And so that's the, that's the tension within the heart of America. The prison system is simply the kind of modern reflection of that controversy. Right. And I would even argue that that hardly has changed. I mean, I think the rate that people are sitting in jail is going to be incredibly high because they don't have bail money. And so it is guilty until proven innocent because then they're just sitting in jail until their court date. And even then, that's just holding more people. <laughs> and I just... Yeah, and, if, and, and particularly if you ever visit a jail, mm -hmm. right? So, so the way our system works is you, you go to jail while you're waiting for your trial. So while you are in jail, you are still technically, in the eyes of the law, you've not been found guilty yet. You're waiting your trial. But our jails are so overcrowded and our courts are so backed up. I've met men and women in jail who've been waiting for two and three years just for a trial. Now, the U.S. Constitution guarantees you the right to a fair and speedy trial. Sitting for three years in the county jail is neither fair nor speedy. So that's a, a, a real crisis in our system. Right, and it really works against those who are a part of poor communities. Oh, and, and it, it works against everybody. I mean, imagine yeah. if I were to say, Gina, uh, you're doing a great job here in our campus, mm -hmm. but uh, go to jail for three years. <laughs> go to jail. And then even years. if you're found innocent yeah. after three years, is your job still waiting for you? Is your housing still available? Where are your friends? What's happened to your finances? So just the way we kind of stick people in jail and make them wait forever Mm -hmm. is a, one of the many injustices kind of baked into the system. And then um, before we leave, I want uh, both of you to explain uh, how can people listening uh, donate their time and what they have to offer, like what can they do to help out both of your situations? So. I would say a way that people could get involved and around the school to prison pipeline one of the first things that you could do is just simply educate yourself about what's going on in your own community schools. For instance, in EPS, there's policies in place that should prevent the use of exclusionary practices for minor infractions. However, students are still getting their rights violated. So one way to protect yourself is just getting to know about what are the disciplinary actions already. And after that, I would say there's a lot of community organizations that 
you could uh, volunteer your time with if this is something that you are passionate about. And I think lastly, one more thing that you could do is just simply start a conversation with a friend or a peer around some of these issues that are going around in the community and what would you like to see in the future? Um, I guess just this sounds really simple and just kind of like, okay, I can't believe she's saying this, but literally go on Netflix and watch some prison documentaries. There's some really good ones and just really be open to what they have to offer. I know there's one I in my criminology class that I took here at CU Denver, we had to watch a documentary about this prison in, I believe, Louisiana, and they the warden implemented a hospice program. And what happened was that you had to be basically one of the best inmates and only a few were selected about eight uh, it could have been lesser it was just a very low number mm-hmm. and so the younger inmates actually take care of the older inmates who are about to pass away so the hospice care and it's really it alters your way of thinking they're learning more about each other they're becoming close they're having empathy and being sensitive and being open and vulnerable and it really is altering how they're thinking which is changing who they are as persons and becoming better they're striving to become better and then another documentary that i even watched and i've actually had a lot of people talk to me about and i cannot think of the name right now but there's these kids these juveniles who are being incarcerated who've committed pretty awful crimes some even murder and they actually take the kids out to water parks are just fun things that are closed down and you see them just acting like kids and it just breaks your heart because you're like you know these kids grew up in these situations which led to why they behaved the way they did and also a lot of things how teachers have have treated them how people have treated them their situations how and it's just it's amazing how you're like you feel empathy for these kids you know if they had they could be they could have been kids if they had the right circumstances you know and so just for me is that I think people need to keep in mind the people who need love the most ask for it in the most difficult ways or show Mm. it or don't show it and I think that's something to keep in mind so just please keep an open mind and always remember that everyone needs our help and just start educating yourself start learning how much it costs to house a prisoner how much how they never offer jobs and nobody ever trusts them and that if somebody doesn't stop this then they're going to keep going through this cycle of breaking the law incarceration getting out bringing the law incarceration getting out and it's never going to stop and so we're the only ones who can do that whether it be through legislation through protests through just talking about it so i think those are just some things to keep in mind sweet awesome you guys are doing so great. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Gina. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. I would like to thank Studio Mass for our dope design created for the podcast, 47th Ghost for the music that you're rocking out to right now, and CU Devers Class Learning Media Lab for providing the equipment and spaces to record in. Thank you for listening, and see you back here next time.